Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, habeas corpus for elephants? Susan Whitkin of the New York City Bar Association's Animal Law Committee speaks with Kevin Schneider and Elizabeth Stein of the Non-Human Rights Project about their organization and the cases it's bringing on behalf of non-human animals, including Happy the Elephant. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Susan Whitkin. Hello, listeners. This is a podcast produced by the Animal Law Committee of the New York City Bar Association. My name is Susan Whitkin. I'm a proud member of the committee and a partner of Prior Cashman LLP and a private client practice group right here in New York. I will be the moderator. We're going to be speaking with two lawyers who do exceptional work with the Non-Human Rights Project. Elizabeth Stein, whom I call Liz, but who is affectionately called Liddy by many, including our other speaker, Kevin Schneider. Liz is a graduate of my alma mater, St. John's University School of Law, and is in private practice in New Hyde Park, New York, where she focuses on legal issues pertaining to animal rights, animal welfare, legislation, and advocacy. Kevin is executive director of the Non-Human Rights Project. He is a graduate of BU and received his law degree from Florida State University with a specialization in land use and environmental law. In addition to his interest in personhood and non-human rights, Kevin is an advocate for reforming our food system. So Liz and Kevin, I'm going to be asking you several questions, which I hope will help our audience get a better understanding of the Non-Human Rights Project and what it is all about. So with that, my first question is, what is the Non-Human Rights Project and how did you get started? Tell us a little bit about the origin of the organization. Sure. So I'll jump in here and I would be remiss if I didn't first uh, just correct that I'm actually a product of the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Uh, but funny enough, Stephen Wise, our founder, uh, did do his undergrad, or I'm sorry, he did do his law school at BU. So we, we definitely have BU connections. I'm from Boston. So, um, but yeah, I, I didn't want to my alma mater would be, I'm sure, a very... Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's quite all right. And like I said, that's where... And, and funny enough, that's kind of where um, the story of the Non-Human Rights Project kind of begins. Steve was uh, in law school. Stephen Wise, our, our founder and president, uh, was in law school in the 70s and in Boston, very much a part of the anti-war uh, war movement. And as a young attorney, um, feeling you know very committed to civil rights as his practice and feeling his way in the world. And it was at that time in, in 1976, he came across a book that I'm sure a lot of folks are familiar with, uh, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, which was a real watershed moment for a lot of people. Uh, he wasn't the first philosopher to take this on, but I think the first to really uh, hit the mainstream or, or hit a, you know, a very large level of, of uh, awareness. And it was at that point that Steve uh, decided that he wanted to dedicate his law practice to advancing the rights of non-human animals. And we say non-human animals because uh, we'll use that interchangeably, I'm sure, with animals here. But we say that to, well, basically remind people that we too, humans, are animals, and that the vast way that, uh, you know, the differences that the law sees in, in how the law treats us, humans and non-humans, uh, we think needs to be pointed out, and that's so much of what we do. So Steve, you know, set out in the 70s, early 80s, at that time, there were only a handful of lawyers in the U.S. that were uh, looking to do similar things, dedicate their legal practice to advancing the interests of animals. And at that time, um, 
it was kind of a, I don't want to say barren wasteland, but it, 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 there was nothing, you know, it, they were really starting from scratch. And so Steve, along with these others, um, and, you know, other lawyers, uh, started what became the Animal Legal Defense Fund, which is, is still going strong today. But uh, at some point, it, you know, Steve ran that organization, was very involved for, for decades. Um, but then, you know, in the, in the 90s, he started to, to realize that as long as our legal system, which it still does, and as it did then and as it always has, uh, considers all non-human animals, so literally every one of the million species or so that is not human, but is an animal on this planet, you know, not a plant, a living animal, they are seen as legal things. And what that means for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, uh, for anyone who needs a reminder, that means you cannot have any legal rights whatsoever. So while you have welfare protections, you've had the Endangered Species Act, which also came about in the 70s, it was uh, increasingly clear to, to Steve, um, among others, that these approaches were never going to get us to the point where these non-human animals have actual legal rights. And we can get into you know, the differences as we see them, uh, not all folks agree with that, but we're very, um, at the Non-Human Rights Project, we're all very much on board with that view that uh, legal rights, the paradigm of legal rights, which is, of course, tied in with legal personhood or the capacity for legal rights, which non-human animals currently lack, uh, that to us is the really kind of key battleground here. And so um, in 2013, after lots of preparation, really decades of Steve teaching classes, kind of being a lone voice in the wilderness talking about personhood for non-human animals. And as you can imagine, getting a lot of quizzical reactions or even just outright hostility or maybe um, a laugh. But, you know, with the filing of our very first lawsuit, uh, and this was in 2013, December 2013, um, habeas corpus petitions that we filed in New York on behalf of every chimpanzee in the state, all four that we could locate at the time. Uh, this was the first time um, that any common law court had been presented with this question. Can any non-human animal, um, including one as very exquisitely cognitively complex in ways that we lay out in great detail, whether it's chimpanzees, elephants, or other species, uh, can these species have at least the right to bodily liberty, which is uh, protected by habeas corpus? So what this means in, in practice, uh, whether it's with our chimpanzee cases or more recently our ongoing case happy at the Bronx Zoo in New York is uh, you have a captive non-human animal and we come in and we petition the courts with a writ of habeas corpus uh, detailed petition the legal and factual and historical basis for this and we also include scientific affidavits which lay out in great detail from the world's leading experts um, including our board member Jane Goodall in our chimpanzee cases just how much like us these beings are. And it's not just that they're like us, it's that they are autonomous. And what this means is that science has shown beyond really any reasonable doubt that chimpanzees, elephants, orcas, other species, much like us, have an interest in their own freedom and their own ability to choose. And they have a sense of their past, their present, their future. They have cultures. Um, in all these ways that we used to think were uniquely human and justified this chasm that we talk about, you know, between being a legal thing and a legal person. We used to think that this was so uniquely, exceptionally human. Uh, science has shown beyond doubt that it's not. And we come in with all of this to argue that, hey, legal system, you need to begin 
to see at least some non-human animals as the type of beings who are capable of having rights, in other words, legal persons. And, uh, you know, that obviously um, can be a controversial premise, but surprisingly, and, and we'll talk more, I'll, I'll stop there, um, but we are seeing quite a bit of traction in the last um, seven years since we filed those first suits. And uh, Susan, if I could just add to what Kevin was saying, sure. to give a little more of the historical perspective of the organization, since he and I have been doing this for a very long time with Steve, and I know for myself, when I first started with the Non-Human Rights Project, we were at the point where, as Kevin said, we knew what we wanted to do. We knew that these non-human animals as legal things Part of the problem is having no rights means nobody can sue. You can't sue on your own behalf, and nobody can sue on your behalf. So how do you get around that? How could we actually bring a lawsuit on behalf of this non-human animal, this legal thing, who has no rights? Well, as, as Steve during, as Kevin said, the course of his 30-plus years of doing this research, he realized that the best way to do it is through a writ of habeas corpus because historically slaves who were individuals whose bodily liberty had not been recognized, which is why they were able to be enslaved, a third party was able to bring an action on the slave's behalf and the action was recognized. In many cases, depending upon the state, the right to bodily liberty was recognized and the slave was released. So having that, uh, you know, historically, then we had to say, okay, what state or states will be most amenable to this type of lawsuit? What state we're bringing our common law action, meaning we're not relying on a statute. We don't want to rely on a statute because we don't want a court interpreting a statute. We want the common law court to look at what's around her, what society is now saying, what the mores are, what the scientific evidence is, and saying, should this autonomous, as we have presented to the court, non-human animal, should we recognize her right to bodily liberty? Should this non-human animal who's who suffers through her imprisonment as a human being suffers through their imprisonment, be able to, to be released. And going through all of the states, we actually decided through a massive amount of, of research for New York to be our first state. And while it started off very slowly, you know, you kind of, we talk about this amongst us, all of the time. How do you measure the success of what you're doing? And in the beginning, it was hard because, you know, as we anticipated, and we kept on filing lawsuits, we had our four chimpanzees. The beauty of New York was we realized after we filed each lawsuit in the county of the chimpanzees' imprisonment, and we lost, we said, you know what? We're going elsewhere because under Article 70 of the CPLR, we legitimately could. And what happened is we then sued on behalf of Hercules and Leo, 
the two chimpanzees at uh, SUNY Stony Brook who were being experimented on for locomotion. We brought their lawsuit. We had first brought it in Suffolk County where they were. We then brought it in Manhattan where they were not. And that's where the first ever in the history of ever order to show cause was issued on behalf of two non-human animals, on behalf of two chimpanzees. And we were able to walk into court as if we were representing two human beings, as did the Attorney General on behalf of Stony Brook. They had to come in and explain why these two chimpanzees were being held captive. And then, you know, so that was historical. Then as we'll, we'll talk about happy later. We also got the same thing. The first ever order to show cause on this time on behalf of an elephant. So I, I think that we, our, our success on behalf of our clients, and we, we call, we consider these non-human animals on whose behalf we filed these petitions, our clients. And we so believe that we are moving the ball forward on their behalf. Okay, well, thank you. And uh, the, the topic of the chimpanzees was explored uh, in uh, great detail in that wonderful documentary, Unlocking the Cage. I hope we have time to circle back to that so you could say a few words about that. But I, I recommend to our listeners that uh, you watch that film. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It does, go, uh, does describe some of the origins of um, the non-human rights project and the early, the, uh, the beginnings of your habeas litigations and the, the legal analysis, the legal underpinnings for that, that theory. Um, so you touched upon um, some similarities between habeas petitions for slaves um, and the habeas petition that you decided was a, a good way to uh, secure liberty for, for, for various animals. And I'm going to ask you about happy in a, in a moment. But this brings me to a question that I think may be on some, some people's minds, that the similarities between civil rights for humans and human rights and the rights you're trying to protect and how do you address concerns that you're focused on animals and when there's so much going on with human civil rights and government's failure to protect people's welfare? You know, most recently, you know, 500 children, over 500 children being separated from parents at the border and who can't be reunited. So how do you, how do you address that? You know, if someone raises that, how do you address that argument? Not hearing... Liddy, jump in on this one. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very good question, a very valid question, I think, especially in times like these. But I think, um, and I, to my mind, the best answer to this comes from John Stewart, um, of course, of The Daily Show, who's who's um, was a was a big fan of Unlocking the Cage, the documentary, and actually was at a screening of it where he was addressing this a few years back in, in New Jersey. Uh, he was addressing the this question, and he said, "You know, what if we as a society can do two nice things at once?" So that you know, it really comes down to this idea that rights and protections, and however you want to call this notion of extending, you know, the beings that our society is concerned with, 
is not and should not be seen as a, a zero-sum kind of situation. Um, I think too often people, whether within the law or thinking just in a very general outside-the-law capacity, they think of rights in that way, that if I'm giving something up, um, or I'm sorry, if, if the animal's gaining something or another person's gaining something, I must be losing something. Right, right. right? There's like not a zero-sum game. Right. Exactly. There's not this finite source. And so, you know, in our experience, we found that human civil rights lawyers are often um, kind of the most naturally receptive and even excited about the work that we're doing. I think that there's a recognition that, you know, these kinds of big problems like what the separation of children and families at the border, for example, um, they're not always amenable to just the kind of skills that each one of us has, right? So we file these lawsuits that are extremely detailed. They can take years. Um, and that's a kind of very narrow thing. You know, us just throwing more and more lawyers at a problem doesn't necessarily solve it. And so while there's not a direct line that you can draw between, you know, expanding the rights of elephants like Happy or chimpanzees like Hercules and Leo, um, between that and, you know, a, a better world, what we would, I think a lot of people consider a better world for humans. While there's not a direct line there, I, I firmly believe that this process that we're forcing the courts to engage in and, and hopefully the broader culture of really getting to the root of what makes rights, what entitles any of us to rights, and how is, do we as a society decide, make those kinds of decisions. And I think that doing that, certainly my hope is that in the long run, makes our society stronger uh, while also making a better situation for um, for non-human animals. And I will jump in. I actually, Kev, as the executive director, I wanted you to start off uh, answering that. But uh, I, I have two comments. First, and I, I'm not exactly sure what a zero-sum game is, but if I'm understanding it correctly, you don't have one to the exclusion of others. And, and I'm only going to speak personally. The only way we are going to have a better world is if everybody is protected. It's not protecting animals to the exclusion of humans. It's not protecting humans to the exclusion of animals. And I've, you know, having practiced animal law for so long, very, and, and I've represented many not-for-profits, many animal charities, many, many animal shelters. And, you know, a question that historically came up was, why should I give to an animal organization as opposed to giving to the Red Cross? And I would say, there are a lot of people who give to the Red Cross. You need to protect the animals as well. And so I, I hope that answers your question, Susan, because I think it's a very good question. The other part of the question, which I think goes to what Kevin was talking about in terms of rights, and the legal component of it is that to give an animal a right does not mean that you are diluting a human being's right. We do not say that, and we will never say that. Everybody's rights need to be protected. And I think that, and I'm sure later in, in our half an hour, we'll be talking about the Court of Appeals decision and, and 
Judge Fahey's concurrence. But if I could just read one little quote of his, because I think it goes to the essence of what you were asking. He affirmed, and in quotes, the principle that all human beings possess intrinsic dignity and value. But then he noted that elevating humanity does not require courts, in quotes, to lower the status of other highly intelligent species. So basically, what he's saying is, you can have it both ways, and we should have it both ways. Great, thank you. Thank you both uh, for an excellent answer. So I think this is a good point to segue into a discussion about um, the litigation involving Happy, the elephant at the Bronx Zoo. Um, Happy's case has uh, rightfully garnered a fair amount of attention, uh, and including a wonderful piece, I believe you have it posted on your website, by the esteemed Lawrence Tribe. Um, so why don't, why don't you tell us about, about a, a little bit about Happy and the case and, and its current status. Kev, go ahead. I just spoke at length. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll tag team. Exactly. So Happy, Happy is an Asian elephant. We believe um, she was originally born in Thailand. So she lived the first at least a couple of years or so of her life, we believe, the way an elephant should in the forest um, with her family, um, probably her extended family. And then, um, like so many other elephants, she and uh, the other six babies in her troop, um, we believe, uh, were captured. So most likely her, she saw her family slaughtered in front of her eyes so that uh, traders could take them and sell them into the entertainment trade, the circus trade in the U.S. And that's how she actually got the name Happy, because there were seven elephants. Someone along the line thought it would be cute to name them after Snow White's seven dwarves. So Happy got the name Happy, even though her life from that instant has been anything but as she's been at the Bronx Zoo for the last 40 years uh, approximately after being sold from that circus um, I don't know much about that circus it might be the case that it was a marginal step up but it wasn't much of one uh, at the Bronx Zoo happy has always been confined to a space essentially the size of a suburban backyard about an acre um, she used to be used in um, she used to be used for giving rides, believe it or not, at the Bronx Zoo. You used to be able to go and take a ride on Happy and other animals. Um, they would have routine uh, tug-of-war contests where they would bring in like a whole high school wrestling team and have them do a tug-of-war with Happy, uh, these kinds of things. And uh, she, for the last 13 years, uh, one of the most salient points that we bring up, has been held alone. Um, kind of a complex history at the Bronx Zoo. She used to be able to live with um, companions, but there was, as often happens, when you cram a lot of complex animals like elephants together who might not like each other and give them almost no space, bad things can happen. And um, Happy's companion was killed, and since that time she's been held alone. The zoo claims for her safety and all of this, but uh, the, re the reality is, like I said, it it's just an inevitable outgrowth of what happens when you cram these species together, these animals together who are not designed to be stuck on such a small patch of land. And so Happy's been there um, for 40 years plus. And when we came in in 2018, now I should also mention that Happy was the first elephant 
ever documented to pass the what's called mirror self-recognition test, which um, there's debate over, you know, what that means in the, in the literature and scientific practice, but um, there's pretty wide consensus that it is a, including in human child psychology, a marker of uh, self-awareness. And so how it works in brief is you, you mark, uh, whether it's the elephant or the child or chimpanzee, there are several species that pass this test. And if they, you know, you mark without their awareness, and if they go into a mirror and start physically manipulating this X that you've drawn, was happy they drew a white X on her head, you can see the pictures, and she's in a mirror physically touching her own head, which seems like a really simple thing to anyone who's used a mirror, you know, in the morning you're checking yourself out, brushing your teeth, but it actually requires a pretty remarkable amount of kind of mental machinery for for a, a being, any being, to recognize this representation of themselves and then uh, kind of manipulate it in that way. Uh, so, you know, Happy's not, we don't think the Einstein of elephants in this way or anything like that. We think this is a very, this is just how elephants are, right? Um, and so with all of this um, being the case, um, Happy being at the Bronx Zoo, obviously a major, uh, some would say loved institution in New York, although I would argue that their standing has uh, seen a bit of a decline, particularly since they've been fighting so hard against us in Happy's case and refusing to uh, just send her to sanctuary. We've, we've said over and over, look, we'll drop this case. Well, this will go away. If, uh, you know, you won't get any more newspaper inquiries about Happy if you just agree to send her to sanctuary, but they've dug in their heels on that. And so in, in late Why do you think that is? Why do you think that uh, is, well, Kevin? Why do you think that well, is? Why do you think they've just refused? Well, uh, that's that, that's complex. That, that's complex. I, I don't want to read too much into their minds, but what my best guess is, um, yeah, there's the money aspects for the zoo. It, it's a draw, but I don't think that's really the big thing at play here. Um, I think evidence for that is when the zoo was was uh, well, it is open now, but in a limited way. Their most popular recent exhibit was a animatronic, you know, dinosaur exhibit. So the kids aren't really, who are the most of the, you know, folks going there. They're not really flocking to go see Happy. And you even have to pay extra to ride this monorail in order to even see her. That's if she's even out that day. I should also mention that in the cold months, she's left in a, a barn, a shed that is even, you know, smaller than the little backyard that she gets to stand in. Um, and is really horrifically small. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a literal cell. And um, and I, I think that it, it as far as their intentions and goals for keeping happy, I think it, it also, because the zoo industry at large, we didn't set out to pick this large fight, um, although perhaps it's not so surprising since we brought suit against a very major accredited zoo. Uh, the fight seems to be over whether... I think if they, from their mind, if they acknowledge that captivity is not appropriate for any species, um, that somehow they've given up the game, that somehow that, that's the end of the game for zoos. We should make clear that that's not our agenda. That's not what we talk about. Our lawsuit has nothing to do with shutting down the zoo. Our lawsuit, like any habeas suit for a human being, is very simple and laser focused on getting happy out. Our case is a little different because you can't just set happy loose on the street, of course. Um, so we have arranged for uh, a sanctuary to take her at no costs whatsoever to the zoo. And so, you know, there's not a financial problem with, as far as we see with, with moving her. So I, I think it really is a more of an institutional and frankly, even 
like pride. You know, I think from their perspective, they see us as, you know, outsiders. What do you know about Happy? Happy's happy where she is. That's that's the favorite line of her of her attorneys. Happy is happy. Um, and, you know, we present evidence that, in fact, Happy is not happy. And over three days of argument before um, the Bronx Supreme Court, uh, Justice Allison Tewitt, um gave us both sides an extended opportunity to put on their case, which we were really thrilled about. Uh, the Hercules and Leo case that, that uh, Liddy mentioned was historic in so many ways, and you can see it unlock- in unlocking the cage. Um, but it was one day, and it was, it was pretty condensed, and we didn't get to get into really any of the topics we wanted to and in the depth that we wanted to. But in the Bronx, we got three full days of, of hearings, we, and we got what we think and what is currently on appeal now uh, a really marvelous opinion from her that from the judge that recognizes that happy is an autonomous being that is she's cognitively advanced in ways that can make her suffer in captivity in ways that are very much like ways that a human being would and she also acknowledged recognized after strenuous argument from the Bronx Zoo that in fact happy's living in a lonely one acre enclosure and she really should be um, in a sanctuary where she can at least have some semblance of the life that was taken from her when she was kidnapped you know, four, over four decades ago. And that's what I think is, is really so startling about this whole thing because, you know, Kevin mentioned the reality of Happy's existence. And what I think is really important, it's not our reality. It's, it's not what we can't talk to Happy, clearly. We can't ask her how she's doing. But it is, the re- you know, we talked today about following the science. We're following the science. We have the greatest elephant experts in the world, five of whom came forward at, with affidavits, attesting to precisely what Kevin was saying, which is why we can make these statements. We're not making them up. We're bringing it from the experts. And it was very interesting that Justin Hewitt, who heard our case in the Bronx, recognized the fact that we were bringing the experts forward. And so she could hear something that the Bronx Zoo might have been saying. And then she could look to the experts and say, hmm, is this really accurate or not? Is Happy in fact happy or is she in fact suffering in her captivity? Should she be able to walk freely as elephants do for miles? Should she be able to be in a social context, in a culture, as elephants do? Should she be able to make choices as elephants do? And the answer is yes. And she also recognized that the affidavits that were put before her by the Bronx Zoo did not say anything to the contrary. So that's really why I think she was able to draw these factual conclusions, which are remarkable from our perspective, because now we go to the appellate division with the factual determinations by the lower court that in fact, Happy's autonomous. And And if she's autonomous, now they can very legitimately take the next step and say, okay, we are dealing with 
an autonomous non-human animal. This is a common law action. This is a common law habeas corpus case. We can, in fact, recognize her common law right to bodily liberty because it, that's, that, the, the right to bodily liberty is centered on autonomy. It's not centered on being a human being. It's centered on being autonomous. Um, so, Liz, you mentioned that um, you're about to go on appeal. It's in the first department. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Well, uh, we will be, I, we're calendared for November 12th, Kev? No, November no. 19th. November 19th. Give an extra week. Please, please <laughs> get it. You have to be there, please. Oh my promise. God, I will be there. Don't, no, 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 no. <laughs> November 19th after, uh, no, no, no. after 2 p.m. So everyone exactly. should tune in because it will be live streamed. So we're excited that we finally get to share an appellate argument. Uh, we share it live with anyone who wants right. to watch. Right. And while it's not 100% that, I mean, we have asked for oral argument, it will be virtual. The, the Wildlife Conservation Society slash Bronx Zoo has asked for oral argument virtual. So our feeling is while we actually haven't been calendared for oral argument, we don't see why we would not be getting it. So everybody should absolutely tune in to November 19th uh, <laughs> after 2 o'clock. So, yeah, so, I mean, basically what we will be arguing to the first department where going back in time we did not get a very good decision from them uh but we are arguing what what i believe and i think kevin will agree is very different uh this time around not only because we have the case that happy's case coming from justice to it who wrote such a favorable decision on our behalf, but what she also said was, regrettably, and those were, that was her word, not, not mine, not Kevin's, regrettably, she couldn't rule in our favor she, because she was bound by these other cases, our other chimpanzee cases, which, you know, and in essence, what these cases were saying is that in order to be a person, in order to have a right you either have to be human or you have to be able to bear duties, both of which are legally wrong. They are historically wrong. It was the first case ever to make such a pronouncement. And we have our the Court of Appeals decision in which Judge Fahey concurred and, you know, for the most part, agreed with a number of our legal arguments basically saying you do not have to be able to bear duties to be a legal person basically to have a right because you know particularly with respect to you know common law bodily liberty protected by habeas corpus because as he said no one would ever suggest that a human being who cannot bear duties would not be entitled to such a right. So while Judge Fahey's opinion is only a concurring opinion, we believe it does carry significant weight and it basically gives the first department their own ammunition for saying 
maybe we need to reevaluate what we had decided before and look at this again through the eyes of Judge Fahey, and maybe we'll look at it somewhat differently. Thank you. So I have other questions to ask you, but we're running up against the time limit for this. We may even have gone a few minutes over, but I'm going to ask you one question that I think is important, and I hope you'll come back again probably after November 19th and come and tell us about the case. So where do you see yourself in five years or in 10 years with the Non-Human Rights Project? What kind of litigations might you undertake, cases in other states, in other countries? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure thing. So we are currently obviously working and continuing to litigate in New York. I think we will, courts, you know, get used to us. I don't think we're going to stop anytime soon, especially if they keep giving us bits of daylight. But we also have litigated in Connecticut. That's a separate, that's a discussion for a whole other day because, to put it shortly, the courts there have not shown the same receptiveness as the New York courts, but we hope one day that might change. But looking forward, we are very close to filing our first case in California, so also a habeas corpus case for an elephant, very similar to Happy's case. The same is true of Colorado. And over the next year or two, we expect to file suits that we've been preparing with partner lawyers in Israel and India, also habeas corpus cases. So a big part of what we try to do in international sphere is to primarily connect with other common law countries where we can not quite copy paste what we've done, but you can really, we can take a lot of what we've learned doing habeas corpus cases in New York and apply it, we think and hope, to habeas corpus cases in other countries, especially those countries where judges are showing more receptiveness to, well, changes in, you know, the climate and, you know, literally and figuratively, but also specifically openness to the idea of animals having rights. So we've seen a number of courts around the world actually already do that, including a judge in Argentina who granted a habeas corpus petition to a chimpanzee. But to come back to what we're doing, habeas corpus is one vehicle. We think it's a particularly good one, but it's not, we're not a one-trick pony, to put it that way. We're always looking at other avenues where we might pursue this through litigation, but perhaps even more exciting is we're well into expanding into legislative work as well, which has always been really our longer-term vision. We model our work on previous social change movements, which seem to follow a pretty well-trod course. They start out in their early years with kind of testing the limits through litigation oftentimes. There's also social movements, which we're well into around this issue. But then over time, as it matures, I think what we've seen and what we hope to see is it gets taken up in the legislative process. We know we can't just go, you know, from one captive situation to the next and kind of litigate and do, you know, millions of habeas cases. That's not the idea. At least no one's told me that's the idea. Rather, what I think we're seeing is the process of getting judges like Judge Fahey in particular and others, justice to it, to put these words to paper and really, if not completely endorse what we're talking about, come very close to it or show very open-mindedness to it. 
that makes it our job that much easier to go to a legislator or someone who wants to be a legislator or whoever and say, look, this is an issue that has pretty broad public support. It's starting to be taken up by judges. And um, we're already seeing on the state, local, and also national level um, that we have legislators who are interested specifically in this idea of, of rights and personhood. So um, they might come as a surprise, but I wouldn't, you know, folks in the next uh, two, three years, uh, I would say to expect to hear about, you know, hearings on Capitol Hill having to do with the, with this question. So um, that's that's what we're looking in the next, you know, five years and, and hope that we not only have legal victories, but uh, legislative ones as well. Excellent. Thank you. Liz, do you want to add any last comment before we before we end? My last comment is that I never thought 10 years in we would have come as far as we have. Uh, I am so incredibly proud of the work that we do at the Non-Human Rights Project. I, I would ask everybody to follow us, go on our website, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all of these other things that Kevin knows far better than I, but please uh, follow our work, stay in touch, connect with us because what we're doing is so vitally important. We are making inroads that I don't think any of us thought we would be seeing at this stage of the game. So I am so excited to see what the next five years brings. And I don't know about you, Kevin, I'm just getting warmed up with habeas corpus. I'm just starting. So <laughs> that's all Terrific. So thanks again. Um, and we hope to have you back for another podcast, uh, you know, sometime in the near future. We thanks very you. much. Yes, very much. Be glad to do it. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Susan. Great. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. You can find the legal briefs from both sides of Happy's case, as well as a link to stream oral arguments in Happy's appeal on November 19th, on our website at nycbar.org. And find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.